Welcome to Skeptics, the show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news and research. I'm Josh. And I'm Nyana, and we're back. Yeah. Uh, we've been taking a little break, but I promise there's a very, very good reason for it. Apart from the fact that, you know, life gets in the way and we have our own PhDs, Josh has recently, um, well, had a pretty important and exciting milestone. Josh, do you want to well, share? Well, yeah, I managed to submit my uh, PhD, which was Which is good. amazing. Yeah, just submitted that uh, now, so that's uh, taken care of for the moment. And uh, yeah, luckily you've been very patient, Anna, with me as I've been oh, struggling okay. to get it finished. Uh, but it is great to be back on the pod, and it seems like there's quite a lot that's happened while we've been gone. Absolutely. Um, so I am going to start with, well, we're not going to try and summarise everything that's happened while we've been gone, but maybe the best place to start is Twitter. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen and if you're not on Twitter which you know seems a good decision for most people <laughs> Twitter has um, recently been making some changes to its blue tick policy so the blue tick policy is um, a verified status uh, that you know belongs to all kinds of people from journalists to academics to celebrities um, to news outlets uh, it's typically a way to I mean it was typically a way to be able to assert the truthfulness or the you know how how verified and how va- valuable mm. important was i suppose um the social network ended its old verification system on friday the 20th of april which is obviously a hilarious 420 yeah. joke from elon musk the master of humor um so stripped all legacy users of the blue check mark um but then recently in the last couple of days there have been reports that it's been reinstating the blue the blue tick to celebrity users free of charge. Now, if you want to get a blue tick, um, and I'm not suggesting that you would want to, but if you do, it's $8 a month, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a number of people have chosen to get it, although far, far fewer um, than perhaps Elon Musk expected. Josh, what do you have to say about the um, the blue tick? Well, situation, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> diplomatically. Yeah, well, I think this further marks Twitter's slide from infrastructure to infantile mm. uh, that we've seen under Elon Musk. Because, as you mentioned, the, the Bluetooth scheme initially was, uh, and still is in some ways, serves a quite an important function. Initially, they were given out to people on Twitter uh, th- to mark their authenticity, uh, notability, and the frequency with which they posted. Uh, and so the, clearly the authenticity part of that was, was quite important to verify that certain organisations were who they say they were online. And since then, of course, we've seen a, a plethora of, of imitation accounts and parodies and everything else, which has sort of undermined the, this idea that, you know, for example, uh, in a, national, a natural disaster or something like that, Twitter is the place you go for not yeah. just up to the minute, but actually verifiable information. And we've seen various you know, reasons why that's becoming less true since Musk has taken over, but this is certainly the, the biggest step in that direction. And the fact that news organisations such as the New York Times have refused to pay for it, uh, and Musk has also called into question the government-funded nature of other organisations such as NPR in the US uh, and the BBC is, is uh, <laughs> another knock, I think, on his credibility. I think it's interesting how the blue tick used to be something that you would sort of strive for a little bit and mm. is now actually incredibly uncool. So yeah, it's flipped. Yeah. <laughs> Owen Jones tweeted the other day about how he got his blue tick restored, but he was like, I definitely did not pay for this, mm-hmm. nor would I pay for mm-hmm. this because it's so uncool. On Friday, Musk revealed that like three people had um, received it for free. Yeah. Quite random. Stephen King, William Shatner and LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Which only I guess only only Musk knows how his how his mind works when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
But it is interesting. Um, to, I mean, eight dollars a month is obviously for for celebrities. It's not about the paying for eight dollars a month, right? Or for people who can afford to pay eight dollars a month, it's not really about the money. It's just about the idea that no one wants to be part of this new Twitter anymore. Um, you know, no one necessarily feels like this is the cool new thing. Mm. You know, perhaps Twitter served its time. There are certainly some people who've said they'll leave Twitter now. Um, I think it's a really interesting, you know, he's just made it this extreme graveyard, essentially, yeah. blue tick graveyard. And I think it demonstrates how fickle, kind of in a good way, internet culture is and the culture, the kind of social yeah. cultures of, of the internet. Because uh, when Twitter, when the blue tick scheme uh, wasn't uh, operated in this way, when it was sort of attributed on the basis of things like notability, that, I guess, gave a bit of cachet and a bit of cool. So not just to news organisations to, to verify who they say they are, but as you say, to celebrities and others. Uh, that was really a status symbol. But as soon as it's become a question of something you yeah, either have to pay for or sort of have to ask for or, uh, uh, more openly from, from Musk, mm-hmm. that has really subverted and undermined the, the scheme itself. So both kind of informationally with t- in terms of verification and authenticity, which I think is still the, in some ways the, the bigger um, part of this, uh, but also in terms of the cool factor, as you say, has really slid away. Uh, and, and that was what Twitter really had going for it from the start, was this high level of elite, elites on the platform. Yeah. It's a place where uh, the, the agenda, the political agenda, the media agenda, the culture agenda got set. And that may be be shifting uh, under our feet uh, as, as we watch. Mm, I think, I mean, just to be clear, it's not just the blue tick thing that's making yeah. Twitter deeply uncool. Um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about all the things that Elon Musk has done. I think even just without even any changes, Elon Musk taking over a platform. Um, the sort of jokey humour, which isn't, as I said, very funny, that seems to play into um you know like change like even just minor changes like the following and for you page on twitter mm-hmm. um there was a dog thing on Logo. twitter for yeah. a little while these things have all just been happening sort of without necessarily any announcement and i think it's kind of interesting to see how far this platform can be run into the ground yeah yeah and and you know we've we've spoken about alternatives on the show before we've, we've talked yeah. a lot about mastodon how's mastodon holding up uh fairly well i, I still uh you know look Toot. at it from, <laughs> from now now and then i do think there's uh every network is is different there's yeah. certain thoughts or ideas i have which i think are better suited to twitter and, and some better for, for mastodon i think in that way for me at least mastodon has become the kind of early twitter where it is just quotidian thoughts Mm. Um, whereas Twitter is more like a bit of a, you know, I always think some people treat it like a bit of a PR agency, uh, you know, yeah. making statements, job announcements, and, and things like that. Um, so that that difference will maintain will, will continue. Meanwhile, uh, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey has set up this Blue Sky uh, yes. system as well, um, which which is interesting too. And Substack, which you may be getting our podcast through, has yes. also launched a notes feature, which we haven't delved into yet. I don't we haven't talked yeah. about that. But. I mean, at the risk of saying something we've said before, I think it is true that the problem is just how many alternatives there are. And yeah. like, people are, I mean, I would so understand people getting social media fatigue at this point. Yeah. You know, yeah. the idea of downloading three apps to do the job that just Twitter did before. Uh, perhaps even before Elon Musk, like you said, Twitter was getting a little bit too big it's like you know too many people tweeting too many different things you have this context collapse Mm -hmm. of it's your professional platform and your personal platform but it is difficult when there's not um a ready kind of successor waiting waiting to take over 
Definitely. And I think when we've seen um, previously social media apps break through, generally they've done something a bit different, right? It hasn't just been a carbon copy. So TikTok yes. is obviously meaningfully distinct from Snapchat and Instagram and yeah. you can go all the way back. So I think whatever service or platform comes along will need to do something a, a bit different as well as, as, uh, as what Twitter does and mm-hmm. do it as well as Twitter did. Um, and so that that is going to shape, I think, what happens next. But we, yeah, we we really don't know. Um, yeah, we don't know. If if you're building a company, I guess now would be in some ways a good time to be creating a Twitter dupe. It, not in terms, of, I mean, and you could also probably get some software developers at the discounted price. Well, yes, yeah, all the layoffs. Yeah, indeed. But another reason uh, that we're not quite sure what the future holds for Twitter and also for social media platforms is this uh, update to a long-running um, kind of story uh, in, in Europe, particularly in, uh, specifically in Brussels, regarding this package of digital uh, acts, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital mm. Services Act, which have already been voted through the, the uh, European Parliament. They've already kind of come into force, but their full provisions will be coming into force over the next kind of 12 months or so. Mm. And the news update on this today is that Twitter is one of various tech firms that have been given this status of very large online platform, which in quite simple terms explains uh, what, what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's uh, 17 other, uh, 16 other uh, companies uh, that meet this definition. And this will impose uh, a series of obligations on Twitter and all the other companies uh, around things like um, explaining how their content moderation works, doing risk assessments of, of how they, they uh, handle systemic risks related to their platforms, mm-hmm. and also letting third-party researchers and academics have a look at some of the data behind this. So, yeah, no, no, this has just um, been announced that Twitter is on this, as was expected. Uh, also amongst the list are uh, entities like uh, Google's Play Store and Apple's App Store, which is quite relevant to my mm-hmm. PhD. Um, but what was your take on Twitter's inclusion here and also just what this might mean for, for tech companies? Mm. I guess one thing I did think of was, wow, this is very relevant to Josh's PhD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but secondly, yeah, I mean, it, it is really interesting because um, I think maybe the first thing I thought was, is Elon Musk ready for this? Mm. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Does Elon, is this something that Elon Musk had even considered? I just don't know to what extent this is something that, you know, Elon Musk considered at all in his, when, when he took over Twitter. And mm-hmm. obviously, as you say, it doesn't just affect Twitter. It affects all these other platforms as well, like Wikipedia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I don't know, I mean, I, I feel like I don't have an immediate kind of strong opinion on this, but it is interesting to see the ways in these big platforms are slowly being squeezed out and the ways in which maybe we, we won't have ready-built alternatives to these platforms because we're not meant to. We, we will all migrate to like 10 different platforms or three different platforms. Some people will just stop using these platforms altogether. Some yeah. people will use it maybe as the push they always needed to like get rid of Twitter um, or to get rid of... I mean, I don't see anyone being addicted to Wikipedia. Actually, I can't think oh, of yeah. one person who's addicted to Wikipedia. <laughs> but, um, you know... If we were looking at that, you would think, maybe I'm just going to leave Snapchat. Maybe I'm just going to leave TikTok. Because we're hearing so much bad press about this anyway. It's kind of an assault from all these different sides. Yeah, so this is a really interesting uh, thing about this particular law. So much was made uh, of the GDPR when it came in Mm. five, six years ago now. Um, Relating to the so-called Brussels effect, which is a term coined by Andrew Bradford, uh, which refers to the fact that when Europe, because of the size of Europe's market, when Europe sets rules, yeah. it sometimes becomes easier for tech companies to comply with those rules and laws, not just in Europe, but in the wider world. 
And so with GDPR, obviously that, that affected data held about Europeans, mm. um, but uh, that has kind of helped to shape data privacy standards uh, around the world. And, and the thought is that that might well be the case with this as well. What is different about this, and I think reflects an implicit criticism or implicitly reflects a criticism of GDPR, is that this is clearly targeted at these specific companies. There are special provisions right. to these very large online platforms, whereas GDPR kind of affected everyone in the same way. That actually gave incumbent giants a bit of an advantage because they had the, the, the people power to actually deal with the yeah. legal issues around it. So by attaching this kind of pyramid of obligations, which the DSA does, that kind of singles out Twitter, which is why it is significant that, that Twitter made, made the list. I think there's a quantitative metric, I think 45 million Europeans using a service every month is what qualifies it for it. And so that's really interesting because uh, as you say, it will create an interesting um, difference in standards attached to the biggest platforms versus some of the smaller ones. So mm-hmm. Mastodon is, is not on this list, not yet at least. And an open question is how a decentralized platform would actually work in, in, in that, in that uh, kind of framework. Uh, and in the case of app stores, which I'm quite familiar with at the moment, um, it's interesting because uh, in conjunction with the other act that the EU has passed, the Digital Markets Act, which is more economically focused, that is forcing Apple in particular to open up its uh, smartphone software to other app store providers who won't then be subject to the rules of the DSA because they're not big enough. Mm. So there's an interesting, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out uh, in relation to how these different obligations attach to different uh, companies and platforms. And then, as you say, how consumers respond to that. Do people want a smaller, fringe, less moderated platform uh, that, that would uh, require them to, to do less than what's set out here? Uh, which I think is, yeah, is really interesting to, to, uh, to look at going forward. But particularly with Twitter in the present tense, as you say, even Brussels has said that they don't think Musk's Twitter mm. is ready for these rules. Yeah. And that, given that he's laid off so many of their stuff, yeah. particularly in things like online safety, that really mm. is an open question going forward. I think it's interesting how um, so many platforms now are asking you to make a bit of a choice between, like, you know, they're saying, yeah, you can't have everyone anymore. Yeah. So I'm thinking of a platform like Be Real, which is still very small and still quite new, mm-hmm. um, made some, you know, updates to its mission statement I guess today or yesterday in the UK at least Mm -hmm. Um, but Be Real is kind of focused on the idea that the people you have on the platform are your actual friends Mm -hmm. and that's who you're seeing every day and it you know there are obviously many issues with it and it's still very a young platform but it does incentivize going on using it for a certain period of time a day but it's very difficult to scroll Mm -hmm. Um, you can't endlessly scroll through like I mean you could but mostly people just have their friends and you know don't add random people because it's such an intimate um, social media platform in so many ways. And so I think that maybe this idea of choosing the subcultures that we're part of on the internet and choosing platforms that are more appropriate for our daily lives um, and platforms that don't, you know, connect us with strangers. It's it's so interesting because so much mm. of um, the internet seems predicated on this idea that we can communicate with anyone we can follow anyone we can know about anything that's going on in the world and maybe i mean i don't know if i actually believe this but maybe that's not the future like Hmm. maybe these platforms will just be smaller or they have to be smaller yeah yeah partly to to keep that cool factor which we now say like twitter have lost and partly because yeah i mean it does mean that they have less obligations at least under this uh under these new european rules Mm. how that plays out worldwide we'll have to see as well but I, I think that's right, and I think the the fact that um, you know any government making uh, laws about tech 
is always a question of the retroactive and, and the forward-looking, right? And here, the kinds of things which platforms are going to be obliged to explain how they deal with harmful content, such as disinformation, uh, harms to children, election manipulation, and, and so on. These are things which, of course, we've known about for a long time, not just in this building, but, but much hmm. more generally as well. And, you know, I think probably rightly on, on balance, the, the EU has stepped in to, to oblige platforms to explain themselves a bit more about this stuff. But as you say, who can say what the next big issue or scandal is, is going to be? Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> systemic risks is a, is a term which is, gets used in this legislation a lot. And, and we'll have to wait and see what, you know, how, how that kind of cashes out in practice as well. But it does seem to be a bit of, always a bit of a cat and mouse game, I think, between platforms looking to uh, get, get new users, do new things uh, to, to get those new users. And then governments um, take a look at what's being done and, and, and what needs to change. Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about what's happened next and what's next to go, um, well, first of all, I was going to mention that we haven't really talked about it on the platform on the podcast, but TikTok has obviously been mm. in the news so much lately because yeah. of um, you know the congressional hearings, um, because of bans all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, some mostly governmental, but in some places also personal device bans. Yeah, we've obviously been covering TikTok for a long time, uh, and we started with the ban in India. So yeah. this is all news to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. If you've been listening, you will have known about this for a long time. Absolutely, and maybe you won't be surprised. But um, you know that's a different kind of crackdown, and the fear about TikTok comes from a different place. Yeah, but big platforms are struggling and yeah. not just because they've had to lay off such a huge percentage of their stuff. Yeah. Difficult times for big tech, huh? Definitely. Well, it feels like that's been the trajectory of at least the last couple of years of, of covering this stuff. I mean, the TikTok, obviously, you know, if, uh, if the US or European countries or other um, large countries um, banned, you know, follow India and other places mm. in, in, in banning TikTok, you know, rest assured that will be our first story that week because I think that would be a, yeah. a, a very big... Um, yeah. and weighty step by any government. US states have started, like uh, the state of Montana, for example, has mm. banned TikTok on personal devices, but um, for it to be a countrywide decision is a huge deal, yeah. especially the scale of a country like the US. Exactly. You know, cannot um, you know overstate how massive that would be. Yeah, in, in all and, sorts of different ways. Yeah, and also what that means for geopolitics as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, because as, as people know, TikTok has sought to downplay its its things to, to mainland China um, and has taken various steps in regards to data protection and things like that. But but equally, there's obviously concerns uh, yeah. in Brussels and Washington and, and Westminster and, and elsewhere about that. So, to, yeah, TBD on that. <laughs> but we we're certainly keeping our eyes on that. Uh, and the final story we wanted to... Uh, cover this week uh, mm-hmm. related to a, a platform or a website which we probably haven't spoken about on the show and mm. sadly we're only speaking about it now because it has gone and this is uh, BuzzFeed's news operations. Now you, you spotted the story. Yeah, I found this, um, I thought this was a really important story because it says so much about the digital news industry. Um, so BuzzFeed is shutting down what remains of it's news industry, which is kind of the end of an era for mm. a website and a pl- and like an app and a platform that was, I guess, a really definitive part of the 2010s. Um, mm. Not just, I mean, obviously BuzzFeed still exists, but BuzzFeed News, um, you know, has had a really difficult time. Um, it, you know, produced obviously kind of like BuzzFeed produces all kinds of things from viral content to listicles is sort of what it became famous for. There was a big quiz era and then original news reporting. And I think while a lot of people, 
seeing the story might dismiss that as BuzzFeed might conflate BuzzFeed News with BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed News is actually like eventually became a pretty serious news organization. Um, mm. I think if I'm not wrong, they won a Pulitzer for some of their reporting. Um, and, you know, it's not the only news organization that suffered this. Um, but BuzzFeed staff apparently learned about their job losses and like they dialed in for to a conference call from a room that was called Doomsday. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it was just like an instant kind of thing, um, which is obviously very sad. And I think it's interesting and sad to hear that we're going to have fewer news organizations. Um, and also BuzzFeed is still, but BuzzFeed is still going to be online as an archive, something Guard the Guardian mm. have called a digital graveyard. <laughs> um, they're not alone in that. There's also Gawker, I think, mm-hmm. um, and a couple of other news or news platforms that you can find online, but are no longer being live and contributed to. So Josh, what do you think of maybe this story about BuzzFeed, um, the death of BuzzFeed news, but also more widely the trend of, people losing their jobs uh, for these sort of news organizations. Yeah, I think it, I think it really is a, a big deal. Um, BuzzFeed when it, news when it launched about yeah. 12 years ago was was a huge move in the kind of digital world. You know, think back to 12 years ago, obviously social media was a thing, but it wasn't so long ago that blogs were the way that mm. kind of enterprising um, news and views were, were, were communicated online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, BuzzFeed kind of bridged that gap, I think, a bit between the kind of blog formats um, of news previously and then the kind of intense viral form mm-hmm. of, of social media and tried to do both. And, uh, it, you know, it, it got some top talent early on. These were, as you say, very serious reporters that the Pulitzer won a, a prize for or the story it won a Pulitzer Prize for uh, was about the uh, coverage of, uh, of Uyghur Muslims mm. in China uh, and the Chinese government's treatment of them. So this is, you know, this is, as you say, not not just lists. This is some serious uh, news reporting. Mm. But I think partly because of it, the fact that it still uh, belonged to the wider BuzzFeed network may have made it quite dependent on um, kind of social distribution through platforms in a way that maybe other traditional news organisations online aren't so reliant on. So that might have been, I think, part of its problem. And certainly Guardian uh, has come out with um, uh, an interesting piece recently saying mm. that it's, it was always at the whim of mercurial tech titans, which is mm. why it's kind of fallen, uh, fallen off this. And I think the trouble is when you, when you rely on those distribution platforms rather than having people checking the website every day, which again, with, with blogs or just websites is what we used to do, that really does put, uh, take a lot of power away from you and put it in the hands of the, yeah, the, the algorithmic systems uh, which recommend content to users mm. as well. Um, so I think you know, it, it, is a, it is a shame. As you say, on the archival side, yeah, this is very interesting that there's a, now a digital graveyard of BuzzFeed News. Mm. I'm glad it's remaining as a resource because historians of the future yeah. really need this, um, this kind of source material, if you like. Uh, and having waded through a lot of internet archive pages, the internet archive is absolutely brilliant. But if it's kind of a, a quote unquote live site that's just kind of retired, that makes life even easier for, for companies, which is really good. I think I didn't expect to feel, not, maybe emotional is too strong a word, but I actually did feel quite strongly when I saw this was happening. Because yeah. to me, I think BuzzFeed really encapsulates the, the 2010s. You know, that's such an era, mm. and the, it feels like the end of an era. Um, BuzzFeed was such a defining part of the early 2010s, like BuzzFeed quizzes. You know, BuzzFeed was the arbiter of pop culture in a way. 
in a way that's, I think, been replaced a little bit by Instagram accounts and by various Twitter pages. You know, there was a point where you would get news and you would get it on BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. And often that news was silly or pop culture, but, you know, it's no sillier than some of the things we see today on Twitter. Yeah. Um, it was kind of unafraid to be very silly. And it was also really a lot of stories about the internet. Like, mm -hmm. internet culture was so well represented on BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. um, things that are now still kind of part of a pop celebrity culture like the, the hot wings challenge <laughs> or like seeing the kind of you know personal side of i remember they had this big thing with obama where they got him to like use a selfie stick and like do a series of videos i mean i guess aimed to like personalize him but you know that kind of stuff is so buzzfeed um and i think also on that note you know you know like i said it, it wasn't afraid to do these kinds of stories and it wasn't afraid to be like this sort of millennial platform I think um, and then it stopped being cool and like a lot of platforms mm. we talk today about like the death of cool on platforms it just kind of comes doesn't it and it gets replaced by a newer thing mm -hmm. um, and it's it's not this is a platform that's been uncool or maybe slowing down for a long time um, so it's not quite the same boat as Twitter but the death of cool kind of comes for all these platforms and I think one thing that a couple of news outlets have noted is that Facebook made BuzzFeed a really big thing. There's yeah. a lot of interlinking between them and following BuzzFeed quizzes and links. And now that Facebook is just used a lot less by young people, it you know it, it stands to reason that BuzzFeed is also used a lot less. Well, that that and um, a point that is made in this piece by by James Hennessy uh, in, in the Guardian uh, is the fact that uh, you know Facebook has kind of gone off news as well. Yes. You know, whereas it was once seen as a, a really uh, important part of Facebook's kind of uh, usage. That has come with all these political ramifications, following course Cambridge Analytica and everything else, where news and politics is, is now seen as, uh, if not anathema, mm. at least less appealing to, to Facebook's executive or Meta's executives than than uh, than before. And I think we, as you say, we see that with with Instagram, where you know Instagram is a very, I don't know, I hesitate to say apolitical, but it's not mm. political in the in the traditional naughty yeah. sense. People aren't sharing. Uh, impassioned blog posts and things no. like that, not least because you can't even outlink Instagram it's, in the first place. It's not a big text platform. Right? No, exactly. It's an image platform. Exactly. And so that can have really powerful, you know, mm -hmm. images and, and videos and, and rants and, and everything else that make up the political sphere generally, but it doesn't have the kind of, um, yeah, text-based journalism that, that many would still consider to be the, the cornerstone of, of political news. And I think that, yeah. that's something that's really changed uh, against BuzzFeed's uh, interests as well. And maybe a lot like the people who've been let off from Twitter and these big tech companies who don't necessarily go somewhere else. I mean, the people from BuzzFeed News, a lot of those journalists will now be freelancers because there's not a big news media organization that's going to be able mm. to hire that many people. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people will be, you know, creating things on their own and it will be, in some ways, I think, a more precarious kind of decade that we're going into now. Yeah. Um, but we've already seen that, you know, we're in the cost of living crisis here in the mm -hmm. UK. But it's with these big platforms, these big news platforms are not going to replace, be replaced by new big news platforms. We're just going to be getting our news from loads of different sites and loads of different platforms and loads of different social media apps. Yeah, definitely. And I think the fact that companies like BuzzFeed were willing to kind of cross-subsidise mm. um, solid uh, news reporting with yeah. all the schools and the culture and everything else was you know, uh, quite a good equilibrium for a while until it wasn't. Yeah, there is plenty, I'm sure, to berate BuzzFeed for, but there was a point maybe like, 
a decade ago, 10, 11 years ago, where I would have said that working at BuzzFeed was maybe one of my dream jobs. Yeah. BuzzFeed News. Yeah. Um, Agreed. As I said, the death of cool, I would be so... <laughs> 10 years hence, I don't think I would even recognize that as a job that people still do. But um, it's, yeah, it's just... Things change. Things change, and they change when you're not looking. Exactly. Um, <laughs> We're not that depressing. Though. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that is our that is the episode for uh, for this week. We are, as Nana said at the top, we are back, so we're going to have episodes with guests, which I know um, people really enjoy, and also our regular news updates as well on yes. World of Tech. We're really excited to be back. Josh, I'm sure, is just more excited than anything else to just be <laughs> not been, thinking about his thesis for a little while. It's been it's been nice, but. In the meantime, um, you know, feel free to tweet at us, follow our Substack. If you'd be interested in coming on the show as a guest, please let us know. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, Josh, I'll catch you next time. Yep. See you next time. Bye. Cheers. Bye.